1: Just a note before we start, this episode does contain discussion on suicide and drug use.
2: You know, the first time I ever took cocaine, I always described it that it was like me falling in love with a woman. That's how I always described the feeling when I first took cocaine. It was like this new relationship that entered into my life. All the feelings and emotions that I was ever feeling from when I was a kid, they all went away and this was a solution, this is what I was always looking for. You know, the GAA done it for me, the gym done it for me, but when I took cocaine, it was like the best thing that ever happened to me at the time was my answer to everything. That's really how it felt.
1: That's Connor Harris, a 23 year old from Kildare. From the age of 14, cocaine was part of Connor's social circle. He was 17 when he first tried it.
2: We were out at a graduation one night, and I was in fifth year, and I was at the sixth year's graduation, and one of the lads had offered it to me and I said, no, nah, no, I'm not going to do it. And he said, do you want it? Are you sure? And I said, you know, actually, I'll try it. I remember saying yes. And as soon as I took it, I, I sort of knew the way I treated life and the addictive personality that I had growing up, you know, I was always looking for more. I sort of knew it wasn't a good idea.
1: Over the next two years, Connor's drug use spiralled out of control. He was using it most days of the week, with every other aspect of his life taking a backseat.
2: Then I started getting in trouble in school and, you know, I was getting suspended and then I'd be getting suspended from school and I'd be leaving my house then, sneaking out to go to college parties from the college up the road. And by the time I was doing my leaving, sir, I was
1: using nearly three or four days a week. Despite his relatively young age, Connor's experience isn't rare. New research shows that cocaine has now overtaken heroin as the main drug people seek treatment for.
2: You know, I took it that day and I was only in fifth year and two and a half years later, I end up in a treatment centre.
1: Cocaine crosses all age demographics with people presenting for treatment from as young as 15 to 60-year-olds who've only recently begun experimenting with the drug. In this episode, we'll hear more of Connor's story and I'll also speak to Professor Colin O'Gara, Head of Addiction Services at St John of God Hospital in Dublin. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today... What is fueling Ireland's cocaine epidemic? Connor, were you an outlier in your friend group or were was everybody taking cocaine?
2: Yeah, so everybody was at that stage everybody was really taking it, you know, not there might have been one or two not taking it, but there wouldn't be a night that we go out and we wouldn't have it. You know, the kind of way someone in the group would always have it. There was someone always selling this, so. Once I started taking it, it opened up my world into the people who were continuously taking it. And then, you know, we were all leaving in so It was just there all the time. And, you know, for me, you know, I probably would have been, and I always hold my hand up and say, at that time then when I got involved, I would have been one of the main people who always had it. Because then very quickly I couldn't do without it. You know, I couldn't walk, talk, sleep without it. It was everything. It was every part of my life. I needed it to function in my day.
1: So it all came to a head for you on your post leaving cert holiday to Croatia. What happened?
2: I wasn't using every day at this stage. I was only using, you know, weekends and one or two days during the week. But after the holiday, you know, we went there for ten days and I used for all ten days over there straight and started suffering psychotic events and all, you know, a lot of mad stuff started happening and when I got home we said I was going to I was going to stop that uh I was going to, you know, start my apprenticeship and I was going to stop taking drugs and take football seriously. And anyone who knows addiction, you know, once you cross that imaginary white line where there's no going back, you know, as it says in, in the big book that we study, that, you know, quite frankly, I don't have the choice anymore. Unless I'm in a program recovery, I don't get the choice to whether, whether, whether I take drugs and whether I don't. And that's what it was for me then. And from there on in, it started, you know, a good solid year of, hardcore using and when I say hardcore using I mean getting up in the morning and using all day not sleeping for three days now I couldn't go out and I couldn't party and I couldn't leave my room and I was going to toilet in a bottle and I was pouring it out the window and I might be showing up one day to work and then I'd lose that job and I'd try to get another job in a couple of months and then I'd go in that and I'd be in there for two weeks and I got into this really 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 vicious cycle and I was you know I was completely at the races and I didn't know what to do and you know for that amount of time from Croatia on to the end of the year I ended up in hospital and you know my parents obviously ended up starting to find out what we're using because they never knew from the end of fifth year on up until October 2018 they never knew about what we use they never knew I was using drugs they you know solely believed that I was still the Connor that they thought I was but
1: what do they think was wrong, Connor? Though
2: they just thought when I they just thought that I was you know at the start when I when I came home and I was missing work they just thought you know they believed me because I was never really much of a liar or a manipulator because I always played football you know I was really really big into the football and really really big into the gym I was playing with, with the from when I was thirteen years of age so when I wasn't showing up to work sometimes stuff they just thought I was sick when I said I was sick and they thought I wasn't well when I said I wasn't well and. I said it wasn't well and when I said this job working out wasn't working out, they just really thought that it all came to a head then when I, I had to admit to my mother that I had a cocaine problem of uh, October 2018.
1: You were only 18 at that point.
2: I would have been just turned 19 then. I would have mm. just turned 19 that September. So that's when I admitted to the tour because I had a I had a near fatal accident in my, in my house, you know, I nearly had an overdose We had to call an ambulance. And that's when I saw I had to say, look, ma'am, I have a cocaine problem and uh this is the mad thing about Dixon I always say when I said that to my mom she sort of just like laughed because she didn't believe me she's like there's no way you're using drugs and I said no you need to believe me I'm using drugs and I feel like you are going to have a heart attack you need to ring an ambulance and that's when she found out and you know things started to get really tough down and that's when I couldn't really manage the bills anymore and you know that's when I realized that five figure five figure that my head. and that's when people started calling to the door and you know trouble started coming my way and we just started to get under, and, you know, quite a lot of pressure with drugs at that time.
1: Now, Connor, you're in recovery now, and recovering addicts they frequently point to a specific time or an incident that proved, in retrospect, maybe, to be a turning point. Did you experience that?
2: Yeah it was mother's day 2019 I'd had enough and you know I was at home using you know the usual the routine I was in there was used for three days you know sleep for the fourth and used for three days again I was doing this and I knew the lads were out and this was the first time I'd left the house in a, in a while and they were down at the Liffey and I was going down to them and you know it felt suicidal a lot you know I used to feel suicidal a lot when I was taking drugs and I always say bearing in mind before I ever started taking drugs I did feel suicidal and then I struggled with my mental health because I always did when I was growing up but it was on me like never before at that time and I went down to the lads where they were all using and you know such and such was happening and my head I was going racing and I was just waiting for them to leave and you know they eventually left because it was mother's day and they said you can come with us and I said no I'm gonna get some rest here and you can head on home to your parents and one guy was, you know, adamant that I'd come with him and I said, no, you need to believe me. Being the liar and the manipulator I was, you know, I said, you need to believe me. I'm going to get a little bit of sleep and I'm going to, I'm going to shoot home and try and make things better. And as soon as they left, you know, that was it for me. That's when I broke. You know, that's when I really, I really did crumble. The thing was like, I always say this, I was screaming that day crying and I was walking back and forth to the war asking, yeah, you know, why did this happen? How did I end up here? And I said, I want my family to know that I love them, but I can't show them I love them. I want to be able to play football, but I can't play football. I want to be able to go to the gym, but I can't go to the gym. The drugs just won't let me. And that's what I kept screaming. And I just want this to stop. I want it all to stop. And I was walking back and forth from the war and I was taking off a piece of clothing each time. And, you know, that day I, I tried to take my life. I tried to commit suicide and you know, as I was at the edge of the water, someone came behind me and grabbed me by the neck and pulled me along the ground. And it was one of the lads who'd been there earlier and he came back with, with the bottle of water I'd asked for earlier on that morning. And he was screaming at me. I couldn't really hear what he was saying. And he was crying and I was crying. And he was holding me and I was holding myself. I always say, it was never I've never felt so alone in my life up until that moment. And I didn't fear death anymore. I only feared living because I could not live. You know, I went from 12 years of age and called up to the development squad for Kildare to then, you know, make my first cap for Kildare when I was 13 and playing with them all the way up until I was 17. And now I'm 19 years of age and I'm now clothes on. I'm at the edge of the water about to take my own life. How did I end up here? And that was really it, you know. That's when I knew I needed help and I knew something needed to change. I either keep going on the way I am, there's got to be jails, institution or death, or find a new way to live. And I really needed and wanted to find a new way to live. I got brought into the hospital that day and they said, do you want to speak to someone? And I said, look, I'll do anything. He said, I'll do anything to get clean. And that's when I met with the heads of choir just a nice hospital, a lovely girl, and, and we spoke and she just started writing and I just started talking and I, I, you know, I laid out everything on the table that was going on and how I felt and that quite beautifully opened up the, the gates of recovery to me.
1: And how do you stay in recovery? Yeah, so, you know, recovery
2: to me today is quite simple. For me, I started off in a treatment centre, so next month the 17th of july i'll be four years clean and i went into a treatment center on the 17th of july 2019 and that's how i started with my sobriety but that was only it wasn't even the foundations to this stuff it was just literally walking in and seeing the site of my new house and how was i going to build this how was i going to build this new life i needed to be honest with myself i needed to be open-minded to what my mentors were going to be teaching and i needed to be willing to go to any lengths to get it and I'd done all that in the hard parts in the first two years. I really did do all the hard work that needed to be done. And that's not saying the hard work doesn't still need to be done. You know, that was the really the important work to do at the start. And now, how do we maintain that? I show up, I do my steps. You know, I'm a part of a 12 step fellowship. So, you know, I practice my 10, 11, and 12 daily. And that's what keeps me going. And, you know, never had an urge or a, a compulsion or anything like that to use. You know, of course, it's crossed my mind because I walk by bars and I walk by people using drugs, and I see it all the time. Of course, that thought will pop into my head, but it's just a fleeting thought. It'll come and it'll go. But I can honestly say that I'm free. I'm a free man today.
1: And the reason why we're doing this podcast uh, now, Connor, is because there was research uh, last week from the Health Research Board, and they've it found the research found. That cocaine has overtaken heroin as the biggest problem drug in the state. Does that surprise you? Nah,
2: not at all. Um, I, I always say it when it comes to drugs, nothing surprises me really because I was doing a bit of voluntary work in a treatment centre. I won't say the name, but uh, and it was for underage people. So it was from 15 to 21, and I was just going down there on the Sunday morning and, and hosting a meeting. And I was seeing people as young as 15 come in who have already been in treatment twice Who have started using drugs under 10, 11, 12 years of age. And, and the other side of it is, it's being brought into areas when people are young, but it's also fully socially acceptable. Even when I started using it, it was like having a line of cocaine when you're out with the friends. is just like going out and having a cigarette out in the smoking area. That's what it was like. And I always say, like, I do like to, you know, I like to attend some music festivals and I like to go out every month or every six weeks and... I see about 90% of the people who are out on the night out use it. And that's, that's how it is today. So no statistic, no matter how high it is, will ever surprise me with the use of cocaine. Because it's just this thing that people feel like they need to have to make things better. And, you know, I won't dive, to, I won't dive into the other side of it. It's, you know, when you have to look at self for that reason, why we need to use that drug and why we need to feel that way. But, yeah, when it comes to that statistic or any statistic about cocaine... I'm never surprised about how high it is because I see it in my daily life and I see it all the time. It's it's in my face. It's always there and it's never gone away and it's only getting worse.
1: Thanks very much, Connor, for talking to us and very best of luck. Thank you. Coming up, I'll be speaking to Professor Colin O'Gara, Head of Addiction Services at St John of God Hospital in Dublin. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolan Brand Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolan Brand Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to boll and today.
3: Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.
1: Colin, cocaine has overtaken heroin to become the most common problem drug in Ireland. That's according to research last week from the Health Research Board. Did that surprise you when you read it?
0: Not in the slightest, actually. We appear to be in the middle of an epidemic of cocaine. Now, that word has been obviously used in the past. I specifically came from the UK um, in about 2006 at the time to work as a psychiatrist, but to set up a service specifically dedicated to cocaine. Such was the problem at the peak of the um, Celtic Tiger boom. But what's happened... From 2015 onwards, as we've seen a very steady increase with the economy coming out of the crash and uh, year on year, it's been getting more pronounced. Um, the demographic in terms of who's taking cocaine has been changing. And really, it's just the sheer availability of cocaine has been very notable for those of us working in clinical services. So, so no, I'm not surprised um, with that.
1: Now, the report, you talk about demographics there. Now, the report said it it, it came to the conclusion that it's a a young adult's problem, if you like, that the the main driver of demand for cocaine is among 20 to 34-year-olds. And so, as a clinician working with people who have a substance addiction, does that resonate with what you're seeing?
0: It does. There is an adolescent group taking cocaine. There's no question about that. You will see it a spike or a peak in that age group, but also like it's it's not uncommon now for people who have not had a history of taking any substances, you know, at the traditional peaks in adolescence or late adolescence and then in either college or work in the 20s. You have people who haven't taken drugs during that those spikes and taking drugs for the first time in their 40s, 50s and indeed 60s. I mean, in terms of the, you know, the dynamics to use are probably different in terms of its experimentation, curiosity, um, peer influences in the younger age group. In an older age group, it would be more complex. So why would somebody in their 50s start to use cocaine? Well, the answer that we've been given to that is that first and foremost, there is a huge availability. Any drug that's available the chances of using it uh, increases exponentially. And there's, I guess there's an element of curiosity about that. But what we're told is there is a, a, a propensity to use cocaine in individuals who are lonely, bored. They may have difficulties, mental health difficulties. They may be on medication. most medications may not be effective at that particular time. So people are looking... At uh cocaine in a different way, in a way to aid with tiredness, with the stresses of life. They may have poor sleep and they may have difficulties coping during the day with all the pressures that are on them. So my patients taking the drug at that age of say in their 50s or 60s, I keep saying to my patients and those, you know, in, in that age group, I say, what you're doing here is you're playing with fire. It's potentially catastrophic because your heart or your brain or whatever other organ of your body just isn't it won't be able to to withstand it cocaine is a drug that causes very serious you know medical effects if you talk to people on stroke wards there will be people in there who've had a stroke because of cocaine and people in cardiac wards similarly who've had very serious cardiac arrhythmias
1: do you think socioeconomics play a factor here in whether somebody develops a problem or not
0: well I mean, the cost is a critical issue, right? So in terms of what happened, I, I was mentioning at the top but coming over from London, you know, starting, uh, you know, looking at starting a cocaine clinic. What happened subsequent to that was in 08, 09, the economy obviously crashed and cocaine disappeared with it. You had the emergence of other stimulants, cheaper stimulants like methadone and methadone, which were known as the head shop drugs. And they became very, very common, were associated with a lot more nastier um, presentation of psychosis. And then, and, and then, of course, when the economy came back, you would cocaine come back. However, we now are in a cost of living crisis. We are now possibly looking at the economy going downhill. And my concern here is not the reemergence of the headshot drugs, but the proliferation of crack cocaine. And... Um, crack is the freebase form of cocaine, which is formed when you mix a powdered cocaine with bicarbonate of soda, and it is heated. And in that heating process, you get a crackling sound, which leads to the name of crack cocaine. So, but crack is smoked, or it's, or it's also injected with heroin in the same vial process, is known as speedballing, and uh, which is the staple across international cities. London, if you go to the streets, you know, look in the streets, it'll all be speedballing. People will. Um, who are using on the streets will beg during the day and, and speedball at night. That is the staple. But there is an also a, a cohort of people who will smoke crack cocaine only. And, you know, there's huge epidemics of, of smoke crack cocaine in the US in the past. And my concern is I'm already seeing people presenting from demographic that you would not, you know, traditionally you associate crack with a, with, with a disadvantaged demographic. This is starting to change. And we saw this 20 years ago in London. You even saw it in, in, infiltrating celebrity culture and it being featured in the tabloids where you had band members and whatever, they were, you know, they were using crack. And that was a, a frequent occurrence. We're starting to see a significant reemergence of crack in Ireland from a disadvantaged demographic out into the rest of society. And that for me in terms of demographic would be a huge concern.
1: A majority of cases in the Health Research Board study, they involved poly drug use, uh, over half, uh, with cannabis, alcohol and cocaine as the most common mix of drugs that people were taking. Is 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 that your experience?
0: Without a doubt, absolutely. And the, the, the main one, Bernice, would be um, alcohol. I mean, you hear about cannabis being a gateway drug. Um, I mean, alcohol, as far as clinical practice, is by far the most common gateway drug. And the combination of alcohol and cocaine is a huge concern. It's particularly toxic to the heart and to the internal organs. On the ground, what it means is people are drinking seven or eight pints. It means that's when cocaine can come into the mix. So you have a cohort of people, they're using cocaine maybe every weekend or every few weekends. And after three drinks, they will take cocaine. But there's also another cohort who will use cocaine to continue drinking? And that is a huge factor in terms of Ireland because we have a pub culture, a long ingrained pub culture, and a long ingrained dysfunctional relationship with alcohol. There are a lot of people who will use cocaine as a means of continuing drinking, where the base problem is actually alcohol use disorder. So it's a really toxic mix between the two of those
1: do you have a sense that at policy level you're on the ground you're 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 meeting people who with addiction but do you have a sense that on on policy level that there is an awareness of what's going on that there's plans that there's structures being put in place that something is going to be done
0: well i guess you got to ask on what level like i mean the the you know, you've, you've the Citizens' Assembly at the moment on drugs. I mean, that'll conclude, I believe, in October. So that's something being done there. That's good in terms of policy. You have the alcohol bill, after spending, I think it was the longest time the bill ever spent in, in the Doyle. eventually getting through. That's good. And, um, you know, in, in, in terms of, from a clinical point of view, Bernice, the biggest burning issue, I suppose, for clinicians is is if if you or, or, or I or anybody else ends up with a, with a problem in the morning, are the network of services there to help people? And, you know, really that comes down to funding and it comes down to awareness and it comes down to, most importantly, our policymakers' awareness. Are our politicians aware that we have, uh, you know, these issues and, and what are they going to do about it, you know? But addiction, as we know, and this is really at the crux of it, Addiction is a highly stigmatized um, issue, and it comes down the pecking order in terms of funding. We've seen that in terms of psychiatry and the diversion of funds away from psychiatry over the years. So it's it's really it really comes down to: is there a will to do it? There do we do we really want to destigmatize these issues? Do we want to take health led approaches to these issues? I hope so. I I, I certainly hope the policymakers will do it.
1: Colin O'Gara, thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Bernice.
1: That's it for today. For breaking news and analysis, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and John Casey. In the News we will be back on Wednesday.